All right, folks. We all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope. Last year, I found the solution to that problem with the Stealthy Hunter rifle cover. It wraps around your scope and action securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged. Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, go to StealthyHunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, The Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA. Listening to the Northern Hunter Podcast, home of all things hunting, fishing, and outdoors in Alaska. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. My name is Dalton Gray. I'm Ryan Humphreys. And this week we are joined by a special guest. However, I must first apologize for the absence of our uh, ever faithful member of the team, James Payne. He is off in the dark continent this week. Yeah. He's off uh, shooting wild game. <laughs> yeah. It's a- Across the Atlantic Ocean. He's in such a bad spot. You oh, know, I feel yeah. so sorry for him. I saw a few photos of him today, and he was in a short sleeve T-shirt. And really? Hoodie. Oh, yeah. Really? Yep. And then as the day went on, you know, he was posting photos of a dead warthog and an impala. and Yeah. yeah I'm really. sure he's just suffering while we're over here and Sucks 40 be below him. zero. Yeah. Yeah, he's over there doing the good work. But anyway, so we are joined this week by a special guest, and James will miss this one, and I'm sure he'll regret it. Mm-hmm. But- We'll get to that here in just a minute, so we're just going to leave you on the edge about who our guest is. Now, we've had some good guests in the past, so we'll just leave this one out there. If you like the show and you like what we're doing, you can go to the northernhunter.com and send us an email if you have any questions or suggestions about the show, future topics that you'd like to hear about, or you can contact us on our social media platforms, Facebook or Instagram at The Northern Hunter. You can send us a private message on there. And the best way to support our show is to like and leave a review and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening on. And then you can go to our partners page on our website, thenorthernhunter.com, and shop from any of our partners using the discount codes. Mm -hmm. That helps support us and keep doing what we're doing. So our guest this week, Mr. Dean Ojala, longtime family friend of mine and Mariah's for that matter. Mm Long-time Sunday school teacher at the church that Mo and I grew up in, and uh, very experienced. I mean, I, n- not to make you sound, you know, too much to our senior, but <laughs> much more experienced on the on the rivers in Alaska. Did I get some of that right? Yeah, I'm the one that's got the gray hair here. I, I guess I am the senior. So, but yeah, I've been been in Alaska since 1973, and yeah, we had many river miles underneath my belt. Yeah, and so you grew up in rural Alaska, and we'll, we'll definitely get to that throughout our story time here. Um, but you know, but like I said, my folks know you from back in the college days, and uh, you guys met in Ohio. At, at college, isn't that right? Well, actually, you know, your father was a student in Sunday school class with mine. Oh, that's right. And so, yeah, that's so I've right. known I've yeah. known your your family ever so it, since yeah. it, they it were young. Preceded and so, that. 
Yeah. So then we did go to college together in yeah. Maslin and, and graduated together. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But as long as I can remember, the Ojalas have been a part of, of my growing up years and we were always friends with your kids and now we're friends with them as adults and it's just kind of one big extended family. So I do have photos and uh, they are for sale of, 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 <laughs> of younger adult. I've got a few too that I've threatened to put out there. Actually, Dalton, I think I made one of your first guns. You probably, I'm sure it was a Model 70, you know, pine. But. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I was just going to say that the, the photos probably include that old, uh, you know, cut out silhouette of a rifle that you probably shipped over to Fiji when, when I was a young kid. If not, then you gave it to me here and then we took it back overseas yeah, with us. You were us. at the house and you and your brother and actually made two of them and had pistols, I think, with it. You yeah. guys, I mean, you shot everything underneath the sun in the backyard. Right. That it, has, was, it was great. That has been it. a long time ago Yes, now. sir, it has. A long time ago. Well, it's a great, great time to have you on the podcast on this chilly Fairbanks evening. So let's just go ahead and start at the beginning. Uh, just growing up, in rural Alaska. Where, where did this all start for you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so home before I came to Alaska was in, in, uh, Missoula, Montana. So we grew up there first nine years of our life. Uh, then we moved to Alaska in 1973 and, uh, we moved to a town called Ninana. And, uh, so Ninana was uh, very much, it's just a, a village on the, on the road system, if you will. And uh, it's absolutely a great place for a young kid to grow up, you know, one that likes to hunt and fish and things like mm -hmm. that, plenty of opportunities there. And, and uh, used to run dogs. And so when we got to Inanna, we had a logging business and we did a lot of logging and stuff. And that, you know, that's part of the outdoors as well. But mm -hmm. got into dogs and started doing dog racing and things like that. Was doing very well in North America and things like that. And so got to do a lot of outdoor activity there and, you yeah. know, just absolutely love the dogs. Mm -hmm. And the love of the Alaska, just the, the wilderness itself. Mm -hmm. And uh, every weekend I could get away from school. I was out hunting or fishing and things like that. But yeah, yeah adventurous. And just to pay, just for folks that aren't from the local area up here, Ninana, at the time that you guys moved there, probably had a population of approximately... About 490 people. Okay. Yeah. Really? And while it is on the road system, it is about... 45 minutes to an hour, depending on the road conditions, south of Fairbanks on the Parks Highway. Correct. So, and, and the Alaska Railroad goes through Nanana as well. Correct. So, anyway, yeah, just to set the scene for folks, small place, but still on the road system, so you at least have access to some infrastructure in outlying cities. Correct, yeah. Nanana is the uh, Athabascan word. Many people, there's different meetings and stuff like that for it, but they camp between two rivers. So, oh, okay. you have the Nanana River and the Tanana River right there, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. where Nanana is located there in uh, Alaska. Yeah. So growing up, well, I mean, from the age of nine and up, you spent a lot of time on the river being in a village right on the river. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I, I, first recollection of being on the river, I got a small boat, just a, a John boat, and I bought a 15 horse Evinrude motor and my friend and I, we went everywhere. And I mean, we put thousands of miles on that little John boat and that 15 horses, you know, we're going up the Nanana River fishing and things like that and, you know, up towards Fairbanks area and camping out. And, yeah, we had a lot of miles on just a 15-horse motor. And I remember when I graduated up to a 35-horse, and I think, wow, I can really cruise on this river now. <laughs> now you can actually go into the wind on the river. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. And so you learn a lot of things when you're just doing that kind of stuff. I remember one time I pulled into a fish camp. Now, a fish camp on the river Back in the days, we used to have fish wheels and, and nets and things like this. Happened to be a fish wheel uh, camp, and I pulled alongside the fish wheel, and then I was talking to the guys there, and I had my motor there, and 
I had all my gear in there and I had my sleeping bag and stuff and I had it wrapped up in a plastic bag, keep it dry. And so I pulled my boat over to the side of the river and I went in visiting with them at the camp. And I'm looking at along and next thing I noticed, I noticed a black bag floating down the river. I said, That's, that looks a lot like my sleeping bag. And what I ended up doing is when I pulled in, these boats have plugs in them. You know, we pull a plug no. and drain them out. Well, I didn't put the plug in. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't put the plug back in because I had water in there. So I pulled the plug when I was going down river to yeah. drain the back of the motor. Yeah. You know, yeah. area. And yeah, so uh, that was a lesson learned of one of those things that <laughs> boats don't float too long when there's a hole in the bottom. They don't plug. But <laughs> were you able to recover that boat? Well, actually, yeah, recover. Yeah, the, what happened is that that boat it sank just down just below the just below the bottom of the motor. So the motor didn't get any water in it at all. Wow. Oh, wow. And so we pulled it up, we drained it out, and the, the, the boat out, we got it running. I went down, I went down about two miles and gathered all my stuff that was floating down river. And, uh, wow. That's yeah. <laughs> one of those things like, okay, you don't do that twice. Right. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Make yeah. sure you put the plug back in. Yeah. So how, how soon into your guys' move up to Ninana did you get into the hunting and fishing world? Did you hunt and fish down in the Montana part of, of your childhood, or was oh, I, that not yeah, as big of a part no, of your No, it was life? actually a big part. In, in Montana, I did a lot of brook trout, uh, brown okay. trout, uh, a lot of that fishing. In fact, there was a, a guy by the name of Ed Ramberg that had a farm that's just across the country road from our property line. He used to run, uh, used to have Belgian horses, and he used to rake the field with the old uh, horses and rake. Mm-hmm. Mm. And as a kid, we were always afraid of him because we said, you know, they were saying that he'd, if you ever got caught in his land, he'd shoot you with a shotgun with salt, rock salt, you know? So we, we, as kids, well, we respected that. I remember the day that he pulled up alongside of us on the fence on Cross County Road and he asked us, a guy by the name of Mike Cooney was my best friend in Montana at the time. And him and I would, we were, even back then, we were just always in the woods. And he goes, you guys want to ride these horses or ride the rake? And, you know, we're both kind of leery about that, but we did. Mm-hmm. And we, and we struck up a friendship there. And, and if you come out to the house, you have, you'll see his barn on my refrigerator. Um, and he said, if you guys like to fish, you can come fish on my property. Well, he had the best fishing in the state of Montana on his property. Mm-hmm. And so we'd go out there and he said, just, just want you to stop by and show me your fish in case I want one for dinner or breakfast. And so we always did. He never took our fish, but we'd always show him our fish. And we, I mean, there's some nice brook trout that we got off of his property. And, uh-huh. and we'd be walking back home in the country road and people would stop. Where did you get those fish from? <laughs> and we said, well, we got it on, you know, Ed Ramberg's property, but he doesn't let anybody fish there. And you see him pulling and you'd, you know, try to ask the fish there and they were escorted out <laughs> with a proper no. And a funny story is that I went back to Ed Ramberg's about 20 years after we left Montana and I just wanted to see if it was still there. And surprisingly he was on his deathbed and i didn't know that and his wife answered his his wife's name was martha she answered the door and and i'll never forget i walked into the house and he knew who i was after 20 years goes dean ojala i still have not let anybody fish on my property since those days (laughs) so it's kind of yeah so back in the early days yeah i was always hunting and fishing and and doing things yeah yeah so I'm sure that was kind of a seamless transition to Ninana and saying, wow, this, this is, this is real wild country, even compared to Montana. Yeah. It's uh, you got a lot more, a lot more country here in Alaska yeah. to cover. Absolutely. Yeah. But a lot more risk involved, a lot you more. know, with being a lot more remote. So you, uh, you probably got into the river country hunting pretty early on in, uh, in your days in Ninana. I did. Um, then that probably, you know, but well, for instance, like leaving the plug out of the boat, you know, you, you definitely learn the simple things early on. You, you learn to tie stuff off to your boat and yep. 
And uh, we'll definitely get a little bit more into that a little bit later. But what was your first hunting trip like in Alaska? Was it a moose hunt, caribou hunt, bear hunt? Uh, the first one was a moose hunt. It was actually, a, I had a friend and, and I, was, I was just working on my pilot's license at this time. And uh, we flew out and he dropped me off just west in Inanna into a small little lake system and a river or lake system. And so I was there and <clears throat> we knew there was moose in the area, but in Alaska, you can't hunt the same day. So I pitched a small tent there and, and I was up. My first moose was absolutely a huge moose. It was a 63-inch moose. And so- <laughs> Set the just, standard much yeah. too high. <laughs> so just as a young kid, you know, out there in the middle of nowhere, and you get this monster step out. And it was, it was on a, a nice um, small lake and stuff like that. And I just remember the hardest part about that whole moose hauling it back so the plane could pick it up was not the, the, not the, the quarters. It was the antlers that I had to bring back through yeah. the yeah. Fighting <laughs> through, through the, the brush. brush. Yeah. And I you know, gave a lot of respect on how those those big critters yeah, can how get those, yeah. how they can get through there so easy. And yeah, and yeah I, I tucked in those things. I had to go across the beaver dam. And, but absolutely, <laughs> yeah, that was, those, that was a great hunt, though. I mean, that's one of those things in Alaska you just don't ever forget. I got the, yeah. still have the trophy on the wall. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, very nice. Did you shoot him in the pond? No, I did not. He was. He, was he didn't out, make that first mistake. No, he was on the. <laughs> he was actually between two ponds when I got him. So he was in the in the the tundra part of it. So yeah. Well, very nice. So I guess that this is probably as good a spot as any to uh, kind of transition into our main topic, which is more about the backcountry safety and preparedness. Now, if folks can recall our last episode that mm -hmm. Mo and James and I talked about was a lot of preparedness in regards to what you need to have in your vehicle to be remote on a road system somewhere, what you need to have on your ATV when you're out in the backcountry, and then also what you need to have in your boat to a short extent, just for what we have in the boat, like out deer hunting in southeast part of Alaska. Mm -hmm. But I don't have all that much experience hunting the rivers uh, via boat as transportation in the interior. Um, Mariah has some, and then James has a, has a limited amount as well. Right. So I told folks that I had somebody in mind to bring in to specifically talk about disasters on the water and lessons learned and how you can be better prepared for the potential. Because as we like to tell our listeners, you're not the exception. It can happen to you, and eventually, if you're out there long enough, it probably will, and that's how you have to look at it and prepare for it. Right. So kind of uh, lead into this whole story that, uh, that, that we've talked about um, before and, th and that you've shared with, uh, with your Sunday school class a number of times that, that, that I remember anyway, oh, yeah. um, and that stands out in my mind for, I mean, as far back as I can remember, and, and knowing you, I've known about this story. So paint the picture for us and walk us through this uh this scene so being prepared on the river and you always say it'll never happen to me well <clears throat> this this was a trip that happened in 1981 september of 1981 uh, just out of uh, high school and uh, we were going to go down to a place called linder lake which is seven miles below ninana on the tanana river i had a i had a store, square stern canoe and that 15 horse motor that i talked to you about that still had that but the thing about that motor was it was a motor that had its its temperaments. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. it would always file the top plug. And, and so I carried around a coffee can of plugs just to put in that top <laughs> plug. And, you know, and I don't know, I wasn't, it, for whatever reason, it would run. And if it fouled the top plug, I just put a new one in and away we would go. And so I had you know, probably eight or 10 of those extra plugs in this coffee can just for that motor. But we headed out, a guy by the name of Tim Jehol and myself, and Tim was younger. He was 15 years old at the time. I was 18. 
And we were going down to Linder Lake and his father was already down there. They were duck hunting and that's what we're going to do is duck hunt. And we, you know, we had a rifle in case the moose stepped out as well, but our, our basic was a duck hunt to go down yeah. there. Yeah. And so we started down and it was a nice day. I remember getting off work and we started motoring down and you now we going down the river in a canoe and, you know, under powers is a little different than paddling and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So there's a place called Four Miles Slough, which is a place where a log jam had been and the river split there. And so we took the four mile shortcut down through there, which is not a big deal as we're going down with the canoe. But I thought to myself, that would be a, a very scary place to be without any type of power or any type of things like that. Well, that was just a thought that went through my mind during the daylight. And as we went down, we got down seven miles down in and we said, hey, let's pull over here. We'll pull a canoe up out of the water. And we had our life jackets and things like that. That's a must. And on you know, yeah. any river in Alaska is yeah. a life jacket, not just that they have it, that you have to wear it. Yeah. Because in the rivers in Alaska, silt, cold, mm-hmm. if you don't have that life jacket on, you're not going to come out. And mm-hmm. so, you know, that's one of the things if you're asked about what you would have, be prepared, life jacket and have it buckled in and yeah. not, not just on. And a lot of people don't wear them because it's warm in Alaska, stuff like that. But that was one thing we did have. So, and uh, so we went down, we pulled the canoe out. It was about about eight foot bank. Mm-hmm. And we pulled the canoe up and we got our gear out. And we decided to walk back in to meet his father into the lake. Now it's about about a three quarter of a mile walk. We were thinking it would be to walk through there, which was not a big deal. A lot of low brush and, and stuff like that. So it was, it was tough walking through. So we started out. I carried a, a 357 on my side uh, for bear protection and things like that. Also had the shotgun. And we went in and we got to two swamps and we thought, well, do we walk around and we'll go through them? And so we just decided we're going to walk through. We had our hip waders and things like mm-hmm. that on. They didn't look that t- too deep. So we went through the first one and just above our knees. And it was a lot easier walking through the swamp than trying to walk through all that, the willow brush and stuff. So we made it through there up on top of a hill. And why well, I, I say hill, it's just a, a, a small rise between yeah. the two swamps. Yeah. And so we, and this is probably about a half mile into it by now. And so we, Crossed the second swamp, and, uh, and it was a little bit larger, but it was just probably just below the hip waders mm-hmm. yeah, at yeah. that point. And uh, so we got to thinking. I said, you know, Tim, we should have been, been to the lake by now. We should probably wonder what we should do. And, and we left Ninan at like about 6 o'clock at night. Mm. And uh, we got and down. this is in September? September 5th, yeah. So, and it, you know, it's September, it starts to get dark at night. Probably yeah. around nine, ten o'clock starts to yeah. start to shadow down, and so we're getting to the point where we're about seven thirty, quarter to eight, and I think you know we need to figure out what we're going to do. We're going to go back and spend the night at the canoe, or try to find out where your father's at. And so when we made the decision after we crossed the second swamp, well, let's go ahead and sound out some warning shots. So I took my pistol out, and normally when I carry a pistol, a revolver, I always have five empty ones always emptied underneath the chamber. It's just where I was taught. Mm-hmm. Pulled it out and we run, sounded out the three warning shots. And uh, we got a report back. And Tim and I argued about which way it came. I said, No, it came from the right. No, it came from the left. And thinking, Well, cover up your ears, Tim, and, and I'm going to do another three rounds. And so I loaded the gun full again because I only had two left. And so I shot the three off. And the same thing, we, we couldn't figure out which way it came from. We're just, Yeah. Well, yeah. So we thought about it. I did it a third time. And the same thing. So after doing three rounds of, of three bursts of rounds, I loaded up the gun full again. Didn't think anything about it. And we got to talk and said, you know, really, we should go back to the canoe. Mm-hmm. And so I made a decision at that point 
as it started to get a little dust, we might as well make our way back to canoe. We're about a little over half mile, maybe three quarters of a mile in. And so we walked through that first swamp. And as I was crawling up out of that swamp, I stepped over a log and I slipped. And when I slipped, by the time I hit the, hit the ground, the gun discharged. Mm. And I knew immediately at that point, I'd shattered both bones into my, my right leg, completely shattered them. Mm. And I was looking at the bottom of my foot. And, and so I was in a very serious situation at that time. And I told Tim, I just got shot. And he, you know, he was in disbelief. He said, no, yeah. get up, mm-hmm. get up. And I yeah. said, I can't get up. Well, he came back around, and I just remember, that, and people asked me what it felt like to be shot, and I said, the only thing I can tell you is, is like having somebody put your leg on a railroad track and hitting it with a sledgehammer and then sticking a hot rod right in the middle of it. And so I just remember looking at the bottom of my foot. It had completely broke and twisted, and I, I knew it was bad. So yeah. I flopped my leg back around. And, and so you think about what you need when you're in the in the in the, in the woods well we weren't prepared with the first aid kit i just got done doing an emt basic training and so i had a little i, I knew i was in a serious situation i knew that i had to splint the leg and so i straightened the leg out the best i could i felt down through my hip boot and i could feel bone fragments and i knew it was bad so tim jehola 15 years old he uh i told him i said go i'll get a couple of splints i think we're going to splint the leg and i said we're going to have to stabilize the leg and so he, we didn't have anything. So he took his t-shirt and we started stripping his t-shirt out, making, you know, just ribbons mm-hmm. out of that. And we packed the wound and, and we st- strapped my leg into the splints. And anytime mm-hmm. you move my leg, it was just, it was pain because of all the nerves and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And so 15 years old, now we have, we still have another swamp to go through. And by this time it's starting to get pretty dark. And uh, so Tim puts me in his back and we start walking up over that little marshy hill back into the first swamp and the decision was to go through the swamp. I just remember him walking through there and uh, I was on his back and about halfway through he bent over and I thought he was going in I thought here it is I'm going to die in a swamp drowning you know and I yelled out Tim you know and he said ah quiet I'm just I'm just resting and so he had to rest while he was in the middle of the swamp well my face is just inches from the water and same was his (laughs) and my you know my legs dangling there and so we get through that 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 part. By this time, it, it's pretty dark. I mean, yeah. so now we're trying to figure out how to get to the canoe, and we are going through the real thick brush. And yeah. whereas we're going through the brush, my leg would catch a, a piece of that brush, and it would just twist around. And it was extruding. I mean, just pain would just just go through the whole body. And mm. and uh, wow. And so it was one of those things. I said, Tim, you got to keep going to the right, keep going to the right, you know. And and we walked, and I thought we walked more than three quarters of a mile. I said, you know. The only thing we can do here is I said, lean up against this tree. And so I stood on my good leg and just kind of grabbed the tree. I said, Tim, I said, go just out 50 yards or so, just hear my voice. And I said, see if you can find the canoe. I said, really, the canoe has got to be right here somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so he, he walked out there. He must have walked out maybe 20, 30 feet. And he goes, I got the canoe. <laughs> and so that was, I mean, I was just the Lord uh, directing him there. Yeah. And I don't know of those that listen to the podcast. At that point, I was not saved. I was not. I was not a religious man to, to speak of. Yeah. But I was that day. I was. You know. I was crying out to God. Anything to save me at that yeah. point. It was a foxhole prayer, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so we got to the canoe. He carried me over there and sat me down. And the thing about it is, the canoe. We had to pull the canoe up. Yeah. About eight feet up the bank. About so. eight feet up the bank. So he went to let the canoe down. And there was a sweeper there that. And a sweeper is just a big log that lays into a tree. You know, lays lays into the water. And he laid that canoe on the upper side of that sweeper. 
and it turned and it rolled underneath the sweeper. Now the canoe is underneath the log that's in the river. And all he has is the rope holding onto the canoe. And so he pulls the canoe up and the canoe is full of water. And he's standing there. He said, what do I do? I said, you're going to have to bail it out. And so I don't have anything to bail it out with. Well, you remember the coffee can Mm -hmm. full of spark plugs? Dumped the spark plugs out and start bailing out the canoe. And that's what he did. And he started bailing it out. And then he got empty enough that he could tip the canoe up towards the bank, got it floating, got the motor back onto it. And then all that said and done gets me in the canoe, gets the motor on there, starts the motor. And what's one thing you got to have on the, on the river before you go anywhere? Life jacket? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two life jackets sitting on the bank. The paddles on the bank. All those spark plugs are on the bank. The, the motor's running. And just out of just all the panic was going on, right. off we went. Just left it all. Left it all. To, to this day, it's probably still, you know, it's, it's in the river by now. But then, mm-hmm. I mean, who knows, somebody would have found it. But wow, off we went. And so it's night, and the moon is just now starting to kind of crest over the hill. And you can see a little bit of the twilight of the moon, and, and so you can kind of see the riverbank. And so we're going up river. And remember earlier, I was talking about a four-mile slough in the log jam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going through that thing. And about that time we're going through, the, that motor decides to start acting up and starts coughing. Normally when it's about time to change out a spark plug. Yes. And yeah. so – and. I could see by now the moon's up and I could start seeing, I could see the, blo- uh, the blood was actually running in the canoe. I could see there was actually quite a bit of blood in the canoe. And so I was, I was starting to get kind of nervous. Mm-hmm. Hypothermic set, set in. I'm, I'm warm and I'm starting to take my shirt off. And, uh, oh boy. And so I'm sitting in the canoe and we're coming around that, that four mile slough. And uh, I just looked over the right and I looked over the left and, it, and the water, I said, man, that's kind of weird looking water. About that time we hit a sandbar. And, and motor stops, we hit the sandbar, and then the waves caught the canoe, and we started flowing backwards towards the log jam. That's when I realized no life jacket, no canoe paddle, spark plug. And the, boat had, and the motor had never started after you fouled the plug in the front. It would just, you'd have to change out and start it up. This time it started, first crank it started up, and off we went, and we got off Whoa. of that. And so that was... At that point, I'm thinking we're dead at that point. Mm-hmm. And um, because we're going to swamp into that, that, yeah. that log jam. Yeah. And we're probably, I don't know, I'm, I'm saying maybe 50 yards from the front of that log jam. And that's pretty close when you're in a canoe yeah. drifting, right? Yeah. 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 And I couldn't do anything. I'm sitting in the front of the canoe. Um, and so we got, a, we got going. I told Tim, I said, you're going to want to stay on the south side of the bank. I said, because something happens, you're going to have to go to the south side. The only hope you can go is at that point, you can get to a road system at that point. Yeah. We're still four miles from Ninana, and so we continued up that, that river in the dark, under moonlight, coughing and sputting and, and, and things like that. And uh, I just remember coming around to the bend, and Ninana has a river, the bridge there. has got the railroad bridge and the car bridge. Yeah. And they was lit up, and I think, man, that's, 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 that's like looking at heaven, if you would, you know, knowing that we're close to civilization. Yeah. And uh, so Tim ran the boat right up on the boat, uh, the boat ramp there, and I'm sitting there, and he took off to get help. And I'm, this time, I can kind of assess the damage. And there is a lot of blood in the in the in the canoe. Mm. <clears throat> and so, I just remember hearing the sirens, and then I seen the lights. And it just happened to be that they were having a uh, convention there for paramedics. Normally, we have just one paramedic in town. There was four that night that were there. Oh wow! 
And so I just read the 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 police report, not the police report, but the uh, patient report just here a few days ago, and I was just reading what the, what they said about it. And uh, so they got me in the canoe there, and so they started to pull me out of the canoe, and now my foot was underneath one of the one of the bars that 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 were in the canoe. Yeah. And they started to pull and actually started to separate the leg again, and I started screaming, and they set me back down. And they were going to take what they call the jaws of life to cut that bar mm-hmm. out. And this, this is my canoe. I'm thinking, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what am I thinking, right? And so I just let my foot just relax and tipped to the one side. They pulled me out and they got me on the gear and they put me in traction. That was the first time that I had Boy. relief from all the pain. And wow. so they got me in traction. And this is, is humorous now. Then it wasn't. But they put me in head first and they went to shut the door. And the traction was further than the door. And that traction. I forgot about that. Oh, Hit that. My. And it's like getting shot all over again. I screamed. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, 15 days in the hospital and, and uh, recovered from that. But, but you know, I promised God I'd do anything for him. But then after I got well, I started doing my own thing again. And so it was another story about how God led me to, you know, yeah. my salvation and trusting him as my savior. Yeah. But being prepared in the river, that was a good example of, you know, we're prepared going down. But in the tragedy coming back, yeah. we weren't. And so yeah. we, you know, and that was just by God's grace that we got back. And, yeah. and so that's, that's probably the first serious thing that's ever happened to me on the river. I've had a few others, but, yeah. but you know, then you learn over the time, you know, hey, if you go into that water, you only survive with what you have on you. Anything mm-hmm. else that you have is just, is luxury. Because yeah. most times boat in Alaska, they sink, they're gone, they're gone for good. Mm-hmm. And your gear's floating down the river. Yeah. Let's go ahead and take a quick break here, and then I, I've got a lot more that uh, that I, I'd like to get into and kind of unpack a few of the smaller details of that story and mm-hmm. then go into some of the lessons going forward. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hammer Bullets produces what we at the Northern Hunter consider to be the most premium and best working monolithic bullets on the market today. These bullets are easy to load, extremely accurate, and best of all, they're always in stock and ready to ship. The guys at Hammer designed them so that after penetrating the hide of an animal, it sheds its petals, initiating a massive energy dump while retaining the rear shank for maximum penetration. These bullets are built with 100% focus on how they perform on game, and their proprietary designs produce great BCs with specialized pressure grooves for amazing inherent accuracy and speed. They have a minimum expansion velocity of 1,800 feet per second, which allows for long-range shots, but with no maximum velocity, making them perfect for every cartridge from your granddaddy's old 3030 to the high-velocity round like the Weatherby 3378 without having to worry about your bullet failing. To view their expansive selection and find the perfect match for your hunting needs, go to hammerbullets.com and use discount code THENORTHERNHUNTER to drop the hammer on your next adventure. And we're back. So part of, the, uh, part of the story that interests me the most is the timeline. So let's rewind back a little bit. You and your friend, Tim, you got in, what, three quarters of a mile off, yep. off the river, left the canoe, and uh, you made it through the two swamps, and you fired your three-shot bursts, you know, trying to locate where it, it was Tim's dad, you said? Yep, Tim's father. Yep. Where he was posted up and where you guys were going to head in and camp Correct. and then continue on the duck hunt. Well, from the time that you guys turned around, that was around, what would you say? Probably. Probably close to eight o'clock. Yeah. Probably close to eight o'clock. So at that point, you've got maybe an hour, hour and a half left of daylight or so. Correct. Somewhere around there. When you get back to, uh, to in between the two swamps, 
where the incident goes down. The accident happens, you get shot. At that point, it's what time? I'm a, I would say it was probably just a little after eight, probably not too much after eight. Because I mean, my best recollection is probably between eight, eight thirty. And then how long did it take you to get back to the river from that point? From, from the time that the gunshot happens, because you, it, it takes a little bit of time to process what happened. Yep. Tim takes off his shirt, you know, kind of packs a wound. You guys make a makeshift splint, and then you light off for the river. But he's carrying you. Correct. And he's 15, and you're 18. Yep. It's a tough 15-year-old. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he actually got a governor's award for it. Yeah, he was recognized one of wow. three of the state. Yeah. Wow. So. Wow. Yeah, pretty cool. So just from the time that, that the shot happened and then getting back to the river, do you, do you have any idea about how long that was? Probably about 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, it was, you know, it seemed a lot longer than that, but, you know, things just worked real well. And it's just like I said, it was, as our trek back to the river was a pretty much a straight line. And we're thinking we should have been there by the time we got there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I said, we walked right out of the canoe. And if you've ever been in Alaska, it's easy to get turned around. Oh, yeah. Try to do it at nighttime with yeah. everything shadows and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So. Especially in that moosey country. Yep. It's all low. It's not like you've got great landmarks to go off yep. of, if any. Yep. And this is back before Garmin GPSs and in reaches and sat yep. phones and all that. Yep. Correct. So you're just, all right, well, we came in this way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And you're just following the moose trail that you came in, but now it's dark. Yep. And now you're just looking at what's right in front of you. <laughs> And then, so you make it back into the river, you have the issues with the motor, Tim ended up accidentally rolling the canoe over. To me, that's a shocker that all those spark plugs stayed in the can to begin with. Well, actually, the, 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 the spark plugs were on the bank. When we, oh, okay. Okay, so the, okay. Yeah, we took everything out of the canoe. The canoe was upside down on okay. the bank. We just, that's why we stored it. And okay. when we put the canoe back in, the canoe was empty when he put it in. So after he put the canoe, we had to put the motor on and things like that. But when he, was, when he was actually lowering it into the river, empty, it, it empty, it actually caught and swamped underneath the, uh, wow. the, the wasn't thing. that similar to what happened with you with that? With a jet boat? Yeah. No, that was a sweeper that was, uh, we ended up sucking up rocks and then got caught and okay. turned, okay. I turned remember. perpendicular in like the river on the bank or something, but. and then hit the sweeper and then it caught the leading edge of the boat. But it was still a sweeper. Oh yeah. It, it was, yeah. it was bad, yeah. bad deal. We'll get to that later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a different story and lesson that actually, <laughs> yeah, that'll tie in later on. So then you make it back into the river. By this point, by the time Tim gets the canoe bailed out, you're sitting up on the bank, you, you know, get in the canoe and then you light off on your way. By that time, it's got to be an hour. Yeah, probably close. I think we ended up getting back to Ninana probably around 10, 1030 at night. So whatever that time frame is. So right? a couple hours yep, couple at least. Hours. Yep. At least, yeah. The fact that you didn't bleed out is a miracle by itself. Yep. So we packed the wound best we could, but, you know, I didn't tourniquet at that point. Yeah. You know, I just, it, and yeah. I didn't realize this. And that shock, you know, I knew I was bleeding, but I didn't really know how much blood I'd lost until actually I was in Indiana and I'm looking at the boat and I'm thinking, <laughs> that's not water. It's, wow. it's my blood. So, wow. Wow. There's still a trail of DNA through the woods back there, huh? Yep. Probably, <laughs> probably made some grizzly bear's day. Yeah. <laughs> or ruined his day when he got to the river and yeah. realized that you weren't at the end of the blood trail. Yeah, I was not there. <laughs> uh, well, that, that is a fantastic story of, uh, not, I mean, not, number one, God's hand of protection yep. on you. Yep. That, is a, that is a fantastic uh, example of why you should be prepared, yep. which yeah. leads us into the next thing Before- is... Jump in okay. into the next thing. Um, 
with the, the, the 357 revolver you had, that yes. would have been an older model revolver? Correct, yeah. That did not have all, any new revolver you buy. As, as the new safety, yeah. As the safety bar, yeah. That yeah. Transfer yeah. bar, yeah. Correct, yeah. yeah. So the, I have I have a 19, I have two revolvers that are 1920s yeah. or older. Yeah. And they both have, one's a 22 and one's a 38 Smith & Wesson, which is an old. Oh, I forgot about that. An old caliber. It's got yeah. the brake top. Yeah. Yeah. And both of them, I mean, it's just hammer directly to, yeah. directly to primer. Yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, that's, if you have one of those revolvers, personally, yeah. I wouldn't carry it. No. Yeah, I mean, you were, that was a lot of, a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, that's what revolvers were back then. That's what they were, yeah. right. But but if you do plan on carrying a revolver like that, don't carry one with, right. w- w- with a round in the chamber that it's resting on. Correct. That way, when you pull the hammer back or you pull the trigger, if, if it, if it, you know, double actions were even around back then, I, I don't know when the first double action revolver was, uh, was put that's into commission. Question. That's, you know what? We should was know double, that. <laughs> was that a double action revolver or single action? Single action. Single action. Single yeah. action okay. yeah. But point being, when you pull that hammer back and cock the pistol, yep. the cylinder rotates. rotates yep. And so it goes yeah. on to one with a round in the Yeah. Back then you're taught, in the you're, you're, you're taught back then, I'm gun sure. safety, you don't have one underneath the hammer. And, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, the situation, you know, it'll never happen to me. Well, this is a perfect, right. perfect storm. And I, you know, was intending to shoot another sound round of warning shots but didn't yeah. and just holstered it not mm-hmm. realizing hey I, I got six in there now right right so you yeah. just repacked the cylinder and yep. said well i might shoot three more yep. so yep. i might need an extra one here so yep. i'll just put six in there yep. and then just forgot about it yep. as as we've all done yep. with different things mm-hmm. whether it be handguns or yeah i'll lock my truck i'm just getting something out of the back seat and then you walk into sportsman's warehouse and come back out and oh i forgot to lock my truck good thing uh nobody <laughs> figured out that I didn't do that, you know, but yeah. just, just heat of the moment decisions yeah. and you just forget about it. So did something hit the hammer on, on your way down? That's all I could think did, of. I was, I was, there was a lot of brush here. So I'm thinking on the fall, I probably up against a tree or landed or something, on land, something, landed on something. And that's what set it off. With I mean, force. cause I tripped pretty yeah. good and, and yeah. went backwards. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, even though revolvers uh, and, and their technology and that transfer bar safety mechanism is there now, people are not as careful as they should be with firearm safety. Mm-hmm. And I, I have gotten more upset at people that are experienced hunters than I have with guys that are, that, that are fresh and green to it because they're afraid of it. Right. They've just been through hunter's ed or gun safety courses. But people that are familiar with it, it just becomes, yeah, whatever, you know, I, the hammer's not cocked or the, there's not one in the chamber and, and they muzzle flash you. That, that's a situation where I'll get a little bit upset at somebody over that so because what, what, that, that, that's a life or death deal. You bring a good point. So because of being shot, I hunt completely different in the woods. Now, <clears throat> I have a, a chamber ready to roll, but I usually, I'm, when I'm walking, I am not have I do not have one chamber on safety even in my rifles to this day because I don't want to either shoot my friend in the back mm-hmm. or yeah. trip and have something go wrong so yeah. it doesn't take long to chamber it in now if I'm sitting in where there's bear country things like that complete different story but complete different set setting so yeah. but if I'm sitting in a watching for moose I might have my gun ready to roll at that point but if I'm walking with that thing it's complete yeah. for me I I just I don't trust safeties because of what happened to me. Yeah, you know, so yeah I understand. Them, so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and and to to kind of second off of that point, right around that time period, if if not right then, then soon thereafter was when Remington had a bunch of safety problems with their 700 series rifles. Yeah. 
they had safety problems and guys were getting killed because the guns would just randomly go off as you close the bolt on a loaded chamber, even if the gun was on safe. Right. And that ended up in multiple lawsuits. Uh, actually, my brother and dad were out caribou hunting uh, with an old friend of ours uh, out, out in the 40 mile country, probably five or six years ago. And they were posted up on a glass and knob just looking for moose. And, you know, but, but because they were stationary and kind of overlooking, a, you know, a spot that there might be a moose there, right? They're not walking, they're not riding anywhere. Mm-hmm. So he's just laying there, and my dad made a suggestion. He said, you know, you might, you might just want to go ahead and chamber one up just in case a bull steps out in the valley here below us. So Caleb chambered the rifle, and I, I believe it was a Thompson Center 308. And he chambered the gun, and as he closed the bolt, it went off. And he had the gun resting in between his knees, pointed down in between his feet Wow! as he was sitting there. So he came, you know, however far away that barrel was from either foot from shooting his foot. So always have the gun pointed in a safe direction. Number one. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's number one rule of firearm safety. It, it, it's, it's funny because it's, it's funny how you say experienced hunters yeah. are the worst. Yeah. And, and they really are. Yeah. And, and I don't know why that is. I guess cockiness. Because I grew up, my dad taught me like always keep the gun pointed in a safe direction. Yeah. You know, he would say, you know, you know, never keep around in the chamber until you're ready to use it. And uh, always keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot. Right. Yeah. But if you follow the first one, those second two aren't as big of an issue, right? Yeah. And because of that, it, it's never been for me, like, it's like automatic. A gun, if a gun barrel's anywhere where I can see right. it, I'm making sure that I'm not in front of that gun yeah. barrel. And if yeah. it's in my hands, it's automatic to, mm-hmm. to not sweep, right. yeah. to not, you know. Swing yeah. in front of somebody. You, you, get, you make a good point. So here's not something else to think about. When you're out hunting and that, that 16-inch bull steps out and you drop that thing, you, you're, you're putting yeah. shells down that thing and, and you're waiting for that thing to drop. You just keep putting shells in it, you know, one or two shells down. And you put that gun back in. You got one ro- rounded in there. Yeah. And you don't have it on safety. Yeah. And the moose drops. It's really easy for hunters to forget they got a live round unsafe in yeah. that gun. And I've seen yeah. that happen. So a lot of times experienced hunters, hey, stop. Put your gun in safe. And and let's before we go. So that, but in the heat of that moment, I've seen a lot of people take off, and you have to remind them, hey, listen, you still yeah, right. get a live live round right. unsafe in that gun. So and it, and when you're when you're in a situation like that, the excitement, the adrenaline, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, it's easy. Yeah. yeah. So when you think about it, it, won't happen to me. It's real easy, and it brings in some things. What do you carry when you're hunting? You know, yeah, a good first aid kit, and you know, yeah. know what you're doing. So yeah, yeah. So then let's go ahead and jump to that. Then after that incident happened, now. You mentioned that just prior to that, you had just taken like an entry-level EMT course. Yeah, just passed my EMT one. Okay. So this incident happens, you come back, and uh, you have a newfound respect for, for backcountry safety. By this time, moose season is closed. Correct. Or, or, or almost. And it so, is closed, yeah. By the time yeah, I'm out of the hospital, it's yeah, done. 15 yeah, 15 days in the hospital. Did they send you to Fairbanks or Anchorage Hospital? They sent me to, to Fairbanks. And here's another oh, thing really? about it. The number one state... Uh, doctor for those kind of wounds happened to be in Fairbanks wow. at that time. So wow. I, I got it. Yeah. That's wow. a long story. It was another part of the story, but that's God's hand and things. Yeah. 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 Orchestrating to, all yeah, that. Back yeah. to your question. So you came back, you know, now moose season's over, but you've obviously got all winter to think about, all right, what would I have been able to do differently and be better, better prepared had I hit an artery and lost more blood? 
because two hours, did that actually hit your uh, your main artery in no, your leg there? No, it was. You it know, missed it. It missed it. Or if it would hit my main, if I would hit my uh, femoral, I would I would not be here. Yeah, driving. yeah, yeah. yeah. Would have yeah. bled out, out by that yeah. time. Yep. Yeah. So you come back from that. You think about it. Do you take more first aid type of classes so, a- after that? So here's what I tell people: is one is that yes, know your first aid CPR things like that because you just never know, you know, right? And and yeah. that's important. The other thing is that I pack with me is I pack a very compact but very deliberate first aid kit when I go. Um, and it goes with me everywhere, and it's tethered into the boat. Um, and then, and believe it or not, I've had to use it. Mm-hmm. And so some of the things that are in there is I have super glue, right? So I've had to use super glue before on a, on a very serious knife wound. You don't have a ways to stitch it up, but you mm-hmm. can actually super glue that together. A lot of people don't realize it, but that's a, that's a must in my kit. Yeah. I also carry now a tourniquet, of what you can buy those tourniquets out there. It's a real nice tourniquet. You hope you don't have to use them. There's a complete different um, um, way of using tourniquets what it was when I was before. But So tourniquets are not as bad as what people think they are. Right. They can save your life. So I do have, I actually got two of those in there. Another thing that I carry with me is when you're out hunting, most people have campfires. Mm-hmm. Well, I had another friend of mine, we were out hunting, and uh, we, we shot a moose, and we lit the campfire nighttime and uh, next thing i know that i go to the campfire and my friend has got about the size of a grapefruit on the back of his calf second degree burn from the campfire his 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 pants lit up and you wouldn't think it and it wouldn't happen we're talking like mm-hmm. it was i don't know if it was mosquito repellent on the pants or what it, it burned him pretty good and he was so, just standing too close and it just he, he just, just Caught his pants on fire. Think about it. it was like, when we camp, we put our camping, our, 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 uh, our kitchen, if you will, yeah. about 50 yards from our tent. And that's on purpose. You know, if some bear comes in, we, yeah, we have right, time to right. react. Yeah. And so I, I said, hey, I'm going to go make some tea. I went back to the camp. I went back. I left the campfire, went over to the kitchen, made some tea. Well, I noticed the flashlight kind of jumping around. I didn't think nothing about it. I walked back there and I see, I see his knife in the, in, the, in the walkway. Then I see his Smith 500. Laying in the walkway, and then I see him on his on the camp chair with his trousers down, and I'm thinking, "What's going on?" He said, "I just burnt myself," and so he had to roll around to get the the pants to go to, to quit wow. burning. That's wow. why his stuff was on the ground because yeah. he was he was yeah. stopped, he, dropping, rolling. Yeah, exactly what it was. And so wow. that first aid kit that I pack, I have a. I mean, like I said, it's deliberately packed. Uh, that actually saved him from having skin grafts on his leg later. Nighttime really? again. We're well, this is another canoe trip. We're in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of Alaska. We had I brought the burn kit out, and we treated that burn not only just on his his calf, but also down by his ankle. And so, and it was very serious. So wow. nothing we could do. I uh, sat phone the next morning. I called my wife. Said, "Hey, we're fine, but this is what I need you to do. I need to get the gang together. Uh, we're going to take the canoes up river. This could be four o'clock before we get there, and this is what I need. And so having what you talk about being prepared. One is a first aid kit, know how to use it, and know what you're going to carry with it. And mm-hmm. that's not a very big first aid kit. It's in a it's, it's in a Pelican, small Pelican um, mm-hmm. pack. Yep, yep. And that's a must for anywhere. Uh, next is your communications. You talk about communications. You know, yeah. we have now garments and things like that. I carry a garment, and it's always tethered to me. Whether I'm hunting or whether I'm in the boat, it, it, it's with me. Because you don't know if you have a problem, you trip. Now in Alaska, we have tussocks. Yeah. And yeah. you can easily break or even sprain an ankle and you're out there in the middle of nowhere. What are you going to do, right? And you try to find somebody, you're not going to. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. yeah. So, And so there's some things. I mean, I could tell you all kinds of things to carry. And this is just from experience, right? And so because of 
back to when I got shot, that's when I started changing my behavior and what yeah. I carry in my first aid kit. Never thought of it before, but it's absolutely a must. And, and there's another thing about communication. Uh, another story is that I got a, back then it was a Loran radio. Mm, yeah. And so use it in case you need it. Well, I got in a situation where I needed to use it, but I didn't know how to use it because I thought it was self-explanatory. And so it wasn't working. And so it didn't do me a bit of good. Yeah. I had this expensive yeah. piece of equipment back then, but didn't know how to use it because I didn't take the time to see how it worked and prepared myself. So I tell other people now, hey, when you take a sat phone out, make, make calls before you go. Yeah, test make, it before you that, go. Because that's also happened to me is that my subscription yeah. has lapsed and you can't get out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. Well, on, on all those Garmin inReach devices, they have a, um, a test option on your home screen. You can scroll over to your settings page, and, mm -hmm. and right next to the settings button, usually there is a test, and you can send a test message to one of your emergency contacts, or even to your uh, to your own cell phone number, and that way you know that before you leave, that's still got an active yeah. subscription. Yeah. yeah. The last thing you want to do is, like you said, get out there and, oh man, you know, say say it's a good situation, but you need help. I I, I shot a moose in the middle of the pond. I need you to bring out my my chainsaw winch. Yeah. Well. Yeah, send a message and you're wondering six hours later, man, how come nobody's responded yet? Well, they didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I am. Um, what I do with my inReach, now I'm, I'm the tech guy, right? Yeah. I love technology. I'm always carrying more than anybody else. <laughs> Wherever I go, whatever I'm doing, I always have more technology than anybody else has with me. And I use it too. Mm -hmm. You can testify to that. Yeah. But well, even with my inReach, I don't just use their test feature. Mm -hmm. I text it. I use a test feature, right? Yep. I make mm -hmm. sure everything's working. I, te I text from my phone to the inReach. I just double check everything. I'll mm -hmm. text somebody else with my inReach. Yep. Just every time before I go, I'm always checking online, make sure everything looks good yep. online. Because yep. I don't know why Garmin does this. I would like to lodge a formal complaint now. <laughs> but if, you, if your billing subscription, if your billing um, lapses, you know, if, you're, if your subscription lapses because, you know, you change credit cards or whatever it is, and you do not re-up it in a month or two, they will completely close your account. And you actually have to email them for them to even oh, open wow. it back up for you to get back in to yep. put in a new credit card number. You so, been there? Yes. Yeah. yeah, it sucks. So you yeah. can't just sign back in and change cards? No. You, you can within the first month or two, but once yeah. it's been a month or two, they will completely shut it down. So, so if it's been like January, February, and you're not using that inReach... And, and you don't see that that's happening. And then you get to spring bear season and you're on the river in May. Yep. Been there. Really? So yeah, so I'm using my inReach and I can't do it for that very same reason you just described, Mariah. I was in there, I couldn't do it. I happened to have a sat phone. So I called my sat phone <laughs> and I had to do everything on the sat phone to get my inReach going. But really? if I didn't have the sat phone going, I would, yeah. I mean, because I didn't test it. And I've had sat phones go bad. In Alaska, I don't care what you say, but they do not work like everybody thinks they do. I mean, they're, they're hit and miss. But yeah, so yeah. that, is again making sure your inReach works, and I like I'm I'm with you. I'm usually carrying two ways of communication with me. Yeah, so. yeah. So I, actually, just to piggyback off that radio story, VHF radios are pretty common for the guide world. I've never had to carry one before, but last October on my brown bear hunt that I was going out on, the outfitter was handing out a VHF radio to whoever was going to be hunting in this particular spike camp that they were going to get dropped off in. Well, I happened to be the very first guy, lucky me, to get flown out. As soon as we all got into base camp, we were delayed by weather and got stuck in the village on the way there. We got into base camp. I had time to pack my camp, 
put a tarp over it while it was pouring rain, you know, typical peninsula weather. I came inside the cook shack, ate a chocolate chip cookie, had a cup of coffee, and the pilot looked at me and said, how soon can you be ready to get in that plane? Oh, man, I was going (laughs) to, you know, kind of enjoy a night in base camp. My client wasn't there yet, so I thought, yeah, I'll have a nice night and kind of meet the crew and hear about what's going on and kind of hear the, you know, kind of get on the strategy and the game plan and how are we going to do this? And nope, just get in the airplane. Well, he said, all right, well, you're going to this bike camp, according to the outfitter, so you get the radio. And I said, well, why do I need a radio? He said, because you're in my pass. He said, every other camp is beyond you. I have to fly over you every time I come through. So before I leave, I'm going to ask you what, what the weather's doing over there because I got to go across the divide to get to your camp. So if I come through, well, I don't know, not if he comes through, but he said, if I want to try to come through, you need to look at the pass from your side because it'll be two different weather systems. Mm-hmm. And for those yeah. of you that, that, that have hunted the peninsula and the particular part I'm talking about, you can probably figure out what general area I'm in. But it is night and day difference, whether from one side of the mountains to the other. And there were days that he would radio in, hey, how's it looking over there? And I'd tell him, um, well, I can't see the mountains, so don't bother. Oh, well, ah, it's, it's sunny and 75 on my side. <laughs> well, fast forward, if folks remember the story and, and the recap of that hunt, my client ended up having a heart issue early on. I ended up having to SOS for the Coast Guard to come and get him for that very reason, yeah. because it was sunny and 75 on my side that day, but base camp was all clouded in. Well, I messaged the Coast Guard. Coast Guard gets back in touch with me and said, do you have a radio? And I said, yeah. And they said, all right, when the helicopter gets you know, um, within so many miles, check in with them on this channel. And I said, well, uh, approximately what time frame should I be looking at when they should be within radio range? Well, it turns out this VHF radio was brand new to me Uh and I could not get it to go to that channel. I saw that coming. Those things are not easy to use if you don't know what you're doing. I couldn't get it to work. It had a little red button with that channel number on it and I couldn't get it to go. I unlocked it. I relocked it. I changed the settings. Probably messed it all up. But <laughs> the first thing I did was I took a picture of what channel it was on that I was talking to base camp with in relation to the weather updates. So that, you know, no matter how badly I was going to screw it up, I could at least get back to the channel that I knew was going to work. I never did get it to work. Wow. The Coast Guard came in and landed and the guys came over and was grabbing the client. And he said, I thought you had a radio. I said, yeah, well, I do. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Just get him out of here, you know, <laughs> put him on the helicopter. But uh, so my advice there is um, if, if you're guiding in Alaska and you need to have a VHF radio, ask your outfitter about that. Don't just show up and use one that you don't know how to use. Absolutely. Buy one and learn how to use yeah. it. That is uh, something that I'll be taking of my own gear from now on. Yeah. So. Can't stress enough. Just know how to use it. I yeah. mean, take that few minutes. And like you said, Mariah, you need to test before you go because when you're out there and you need it, yeah. it's absolutely critical that you yeah. need it. I can give you other stories of, of friends that actually mauled by a bear and mm-hmm. his phone actually worked. You know, that's unbelievable. That's a long story. But mm-hmm. again, communication, going back to what to, be, what to have is communications mm-hmm. and know how to use it and know that it does work. Yeah. 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 So 
So outside of the first aid kit, you mentioned the Garmin yep. in reach. You mentioned the sat phone. But then you mentioned something that uh, strikes a personal chord. I have alluded a little bit in the past to an incident that happened with myself and another person that that uh, that will remain anonymous. Um, we were out on the river moose hunting, and uh, it was a skinny river, tight quarters. We were in a shallow running jet boat, uh, for all intents and purposes, a, a, a fairly high performance boat compared to what I'm usually in. This this thing could move and it could get through shallow water. So we had pushed way out into some really um, untouched area. To put it lightly, we were passing dead airboats on the way into the spot. Yep. Airboats that would try to make it up on the grass banks, not have enough gusto to get up there, and then they would swamp the back end of it. I think I counted at least really? three dead jet, yeah, airboats on the way up that river. My. At least three. I've watched airboats do all kinds of crazy stuff. And they can do it. If you know how to work yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's but, a lot to it. Yeah. So anyway, point being, we were way out in the middle of nowhere, and we encountered a sweeper, which, like you said, is a log that's in the water, but is stuck there. It's not floating. It's stationary. And sometimes sweepers, you can see them when you're coming around the corner. Sometimes you can't. Well, we came around the corner and saw one, and it was right in the corner of the river with a massive log jam. But we could see that there was a little bit of kind of a little smooth wave. It was like a little bump in the water. So we got out. There was plenty of gravel bar right there downstream of it. We got out, took a look at it. And uh, the other fellow that I was with, whose boat it was, said, all right, grab your gear out of the bow. I'm just going to go ahead and hop over this. The boat will do just fine, but I don't want you sitting in the bow with that extra weight up in the front end of the boat. So you get out, walk up the gravel bar. I'll pull in up there once I hop over this over this log and by this time it's getting close to dark we'd been in the river a long time that day he pops over the sweeper no big deal and when i say sweeper that this is an old tree with most of the bark worn off of it that's probably and this has been a long time ago but it it was at least uh twice as big around as i am so it's it's not a small tree but it's about that far below the water, about three, four inches below the surface of the water. So he hops over the river or, or, or over the tree and then pulls in upriver of the sweeper. Well, he didn't pull up river very far. And that was probably partly my fault. I didn't really walk all that far up past the log. I thought, well, he just said go upriver. Well, this is the first time I had been in a river since we'd been back in the States. Right. I, I, I was very green to the whole ordeal. And so I threw my stuff back in the bow. He, he had pulled in, I threw it back in the bow laid the 300 wind mag in the bow of the boat and this is where i you know this is where the most regret is because nothing worse happened but i went to push that boat back out with my left foot and i had one leg slung over the bow of the boat and he went to hit the throttle on the jet and that infamous sound gravel sucked up rocks because we were still in too shallow a water right next to the bank well Ordinarily speaking, that's not really the end of the world if you have buffer downriver. We didn't have a buffer. Now, I had just given us a hearty shove, pushing the bow out into the river, and now we have no thrust. So what happens? The current grabs the bow and turns us perpendicular into the flow of the water. And what's right downriver of us? The sweeper, which the boat 
bumps into, and then the current of the water in that little skinny spot next to the log jam was so strong, I have never seen anything else like it. It grabbed the leading edge of that boat, and within seconds, the whole thing was just full of water. Yep. And just boom, to the bottom. Yep. And now we've got sleeping bags and dry bags, and that 300 wind mag was poof, gone. I mean, it just immediately disappeared into that dark water. Well, I was able to hustle and get downstream and grab stuff as it was, you know, flying out of the boat, basically. Um, The guy that owned the boat that that was still standing in it behind the console, the water was only about four feet deep right there, thankfully. That was was our saving grace right there. Mm -hmm. The first thing he grabbed from under the console was the orange sat phone box in the little Pelican case. Threw that up on the gravel bar. Threw the sleeping bag up there. We were able to save one sleeping bag, a little tent, a few meals that were wrapped in tin foil that we had, you know, had pre-cooked the day before. And so basically, long story short, we ended up out there for like a day and a half with very, very little provisions. Like I said, I was green to the whole deal of being in the backcountry. When I came back off of that deal, a- after we had been rescued effectively, we were able to recover the boat and some of the stuff that we had lost, never found the gun. We got back into town and I saw you at church either the day of or the day after I saw you at church and you'd heard about it, obviously, because my dad had been called as part of the rescue team to go out in the rescue boat to to come up and find us. And the first thing you said to me was, could you have made it out there if you hadn't have been with so-and-so with what you had in your pockets? And I said, no, didn't really think much of it. And you said, you need to have what you need to survive on your person when you're in a boat. And I've never forgotten that. So you mentioned that earlier in the podcast about always having survival items on your person. What does that look like for Mr. Ojala? So for me, first thing is, and let's just talk about Alaska rivers. They're glacier fed. And so you yep. go in those, yeah. you go in those, that water. It's not like going in the water in the States where it's 70 degrees. It, we're talking 40 degree water or even colder. Yeah. And you get in that water, first thing it's going to do is going to be your body temperature starts to drop. Your hands get stiff. Everything gets stiff. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you're going to have to do is get warm. You're going to start a fire, right? So the first thing I have is something to start a fire with. And my boys, I do this all the time. I'll be on the water, and I'll just pull over and say, hey, we just swamp the boat. Start me a fire with what you have on you. And a lot of times, they don't have it on them. And so yep. over the years, I've learned a lot of things about what I carry. I used to carry a big lighter. Mm. Here's a trick. Go out there and... and Put that Bic lighter into a bowl of ice water, hold your hand in it for about 10 or 15 minutes, and then try to see if that Bic lighter is going to work for you. It ain't, it's not going to happen. You're not going to, you're not going to get the thing to strike. Yeah. And so that, you know, Bic lighters are out. Well, put the Bic lighter in a, in a, in a Ziploc baggie. Well, you know, you can put a Ziploc baggie in your pocket enough, it's going to have a hole in it. Sooner or later, it's going to get <laughs> right, wet too. Right. So, yeah. So that's, that's, you know, better than the first case. But over the years, what I've, and then people say, well, carry fire, you know, fireproof matches or waterproof matches. Go use those sometime when your hands are cold. They're, they're just, they either break or they don't work, they don't light up. Mm-hmm. And so what I found, and this is something that was passed to me, I like to say it's my idea, but it's not as passed to me from knowledge from, from experienced hunters, is I carry around with me a, a small container that you can buy at any um, sporting shop mm-hmm. store. It's just an orange container. It's got ribs on it waterproof but you put waterproof matches in it what they're they're called for but i don't do that i put cotton balls in it and then i fill it full of baby oil just as many cotton balls i can just as much baby oil as i can to let that soak and i carry that with me 
And the other thing I carry with me is, is a flint as something that will create a spark. And mm-hmm. so I can always create a spark off of flint. I don't care how cold your hands are, you can get that to you spark. spark right. And so I'll take a cotton ball out and I'll fluff that cotton ball up and then I'll set it down and I'll spark it. And that cotton ball will burn for anywhere from two and a half to four minutes. Mm-hmm. And it burns quite a while. And so you got, I usually have 10 of them in there and you can usually get a fire going with that. And yeah. so, and then you get your hands start warming up. But so that's one thing that I carry and my boys know it, is that I have a, a container that has the cotton balls with, you can use Vaseline or I use baby oil in that case. Yeah. And then I always have a strike on me, always. And those strikes are a lot of times are tethered to my belt loop. And so if I go in, it doesn't fall out of my pocket, mm. things like that. So the first thing that I would say is something to start a fire with, absolutely must. And then after that, in all my boats, there's a lot of gear in my boats. But if your boat goes under like yours did, a lot of times you don't get that back. Yeah. And so another thing that's on me in the boat, it's always with me, it's on me, clipped on me, is the Garmin. Mm-hmm. And so if you go in, the Garmin's are waterproof, but at least you have some way of sending out that SOS if you need to, you could get help coming. Mm-hmm. So. If it's not tethered to you, not suck into a zipped up pocket, you might as well just count it for not. And yeah. so, and when, like you said, when, when you're on the river, something happens, it doesn't, doesn't happen in slow motion. It no. happens like immediately yeah. and you're scrambling for your life. And so then what you come out with is what you're going to survive with. If you get the other stuff, I just say that's just creature comforts. You know, you're, yeah. you've just got a bonus at that point. And you can survive quite a while in, in the wilderness. And so me, I tell my boys, if you're out there and you need to, build the biggest fires you need to. I said, planes are going to come sooner or later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for, yeah. Start a forest fire. You know what? At the end of the day, you're going to get, you're going to get rescued. Right. And so fire is number one and, and how to start that. And another thing I tell people is know how to use it. You know, go out there and practice with it. Put your hands in cold water, mm-hmm. what you need to do. It. And there's a lot of different techniques. And now uh, you and I discussed, a lot of people carry these, these waterproof butane lighters, right? Mm-hmm. Those are mechanical and those things can break. Yeah. And so, yeah, they might work good, but over time, you're relying on a mechanical situation yeah. or a flint and, and cotton balls. Yeah. I, I haven't had them not work yet, so. <laughs> They've been working since the beginning of time. I doubt they're going to yeah. start failing now. And there's a lot of, people have a lot of other tricks, but that just happened to be what, what works for me, and it works very well, so. Yeah. So, and then, again, first aid kits. I can't say enough about first aid kits, and they don't have to be, you know, big and bulky, but you need to have the necessities in that thing, and mm-hmm. you need to have it readily available to you. And so a lot of times I'll carry on my person a small first aid kit, usually tucks into my inside pocket and stuff like that, carries a, usually a, a, a roll of tape mm-hmm. because you can do a lot with a roll of tape. And believe it or not, uh, duct tape, not duct tape, but uh, black electrical, oh, yeah. electrical tape is usually yeah. in my bag as well yeah. on my person because you can do a lot with that yeah. as well. You so. can retape the tip of your gun barrel if you, yep. you know, have to fire around oh, yeah. or, <laughs> and so, or use it for first aid. And the other <laughs> thing that's tucked in one of my pockets usually always when I'm hunting is going to be, you can buy the orange vest, you know, the camel orange vest, the mm-hmm. small ones. Yeah. I'll cut part of that out and you can always flag somebody down with something like that. Something to think about. Uh, it's, it doesn't take yeah, up much that, weight. That, that's a really good point because I've mentioned on this podcast before, but more than more than, more often than not in Alaska, we've talked about the chances of running across somebody are pretty small. Mm-hmm. But what's even better is that it, what it's an even better chance is if you do run across somebody, their hunters, your hunters, their their plan is to avoid other people. Yeah. yeah. And so the moment they see the sign of other life, <laughs> they go the other way. Yeah. <laughs> so having something to get their attention if you are in that situation where Fluorescent, you need help. Fluorescent colors you got now today, it's just a, yeah. it's a, it's a must. You start waving that thing around and believe it or not, you, you'll, you'll get attention that way. And that doesn't yeah. take Because nobody much. wears hunter's orange up here. No. No. So the moment they see it, something's wrong. Yeah. 
You should wear it if you're going to be caribou hunting off the Steve's Highway. Yeah, there's that. There's that, right. yeah. <laughs> I would say armor-proof vest, but that's <laughs> that's another story. Even if you're not wearing it, just to put it on the antlers of your dead caribou that you shoot oh so my. that you're not yeah. getting lobbed rounds oh, at. Yeah. I've had that happen. In Alaska, another, another thing, and, and it's a must, and, and people, I see a lot of people in Alaska, in fact, my wife's uncle lost his life this year um, on the river. Uh, we really believe that we could have found him. He always wore his life jacket, but for what a reason. Uh, when his boat went under, uh, he didn't have it. His life jacket, we found his life jacket in the boat after we found the boat. Wow. Mm. And we still haven't found him. So um, life jackets have to be worn. Um, mm -hmm. Just have to be. In Alaska, like I said, cold water, he could have maybe survived and made it to shore with a life preserver. Um, we lost my wife's uh, a nephew, not nephew, but cousin, the same way. Uh, decided he wanted to try to swim using a gas can. Uh, well, that, did, you know, got cold and cramped up. But Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, you know, put the life jacket on. There's a lot of different life jackets out there. Even the ones now you've got the CO2 cartridges. Do yeah, something that yeah, it's on. Yeah. You don't just put it in a boat and sit on it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. What about a light? Do you carry some kind of a headlamp with you? I carry quite a bit, quite a few, actually quite a few lights. And, I, and there's a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of good ones out there, the bright halogen lights and things yeah. like that, even yeah. the LED lights out there. So I usually have two on me at all times. Okay. Yeah. And so if I don't have two, I usually have, definitely have spare batteries. Um, and I got friends that uh, have been out in the, Wintertime, uh, mm -hmm. no light. And they yeah. had to fill their way back on the trail. Believe it or not, someone we know is a trapper here in Alaska. And I learned that lesson from him is that a light, spare batteries, and then use those. So, is this the guy? I think he said something like, you can walk a lot further in a day than you can ride in 20 minutes on a snow machine? Yep. Yeah. No, no, no. Other way around. <laughs> yeah, the way of it. You can ride a lot. That's right. You yeah. can ride a lot further yeah. in twenty minutes on a snow machine than you can walk. Yeah, I, I got. I could could catch yeah. there. No, so that was that was a lesson. You know, that's lessons learned from other people. It's like yeah, you know, carrying yeah. in his yeah. It, and now they're they're fairly small and fairly yeah. bright. I mean, right? yeah. 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 Lamps, Th yeah. This flashlight right here, I like to show it off because it's it's awesome. But it's a Fenix E thirty five R. It it is at its brightest is thirty one hundred lumens, and on that brightness setting, it will last two and a half hours. I have tested it. I set it up at deer camp, hung it up on a log, mm -hmm. and left it on full brightness for well over an hour while we skinned our deer. It didn't even mm -hmm. start to dim. And you also have the strobe on that one, Drew, correct? Yep. yep. So that, you hold, yep, there you go. Yep. And that, that's another way to get people's attention. Oh, uh, that's just, yeah. just a, but even run, in daytime. This thing yeah. will run 30, 40 hours on its lowest setting, which is like yeah. Yeah. three, 400 lumens. Yeah. yeah. Which is basically all you need for yeah. most practical uses. If you're in a survival situation, you can just run that on low and, yep. and it for, will for at least probably four nights or five nights. But if you're not using it all that much, it might last you I use this well thing over a week. All the time yeah. on usually the lowest or second setting because it is so bright. I yeah. accidentally just flashed myself with the lowest setting and I'm seeing spots. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I use it all the time because I'm working in dark yeah. spaces or looking in dark holes and I charge this thing maybe twice a week or not. No maybe once every two weeks mm. then I'm plugging this thing in just like I better charge this because when I need it tomorrow I want it to work yeah, yeah. but mm -hmm. it's it's uh, it was 80 bucks wow yeah that's that's a pretty good price yeah yeah you get them yeah I mean for what you get out yeah. of that 80 bucks is nothing right yeah when you need and, it and when I'm in the woods I carry this in a headlight yeah so then he, here's something else I, I don't think I've ever asked you this particular question before in reference to what you have on your person you've talked about uh, things that you carry what about what you wear do you dress with certain materials and layers in mind? Layers always. Yep. Because, the, you know, 
You said earlier in the podcast that uh, Alaska is is warm at, at times, and so people can tend to not want to wear a life jacket because, well, it's hot out, or you know, I, I'm only wearing a t-shirt, and this is just kind of feels weird up against my no-sleeved arms, or I mean, pick your pick your excuse, right? Yeah. And 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 I I've been guilty of it too, of not wearing it every time that I should have been. But with that particular in mind, say you fall in the river, okay. Something that's on your person, obviously, if you're carrying a way to start a fire in reach, maybe a handgun, a light of some sort, and you make it to shore, you're probably not going to make it very long unless you can get a very big fire going if you're wearing blue jeans and a cotton long sleeve shirt and a cotton jacket. So talk about maybe some of the materials that you should or shouldn't be considering wearing. So a lot of times, you know, you're a good point. So in Again, Alaska rivers, a lot of interior Alaska rivers are silt and, mm-hmm. you know, silt will pack in wool. I mean, it'll, it'll pack it hard. You know, wool's good out in the woods, you get it, mm-hmm. but you fall in river, it's a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, usually a lot of the times layers. And so if you pack layers and even though you're wet, mm-hmm. um, wool will keep you warm, but you get that off. So a lot of lighter layers, um, ones that dry out quick, yeah. uh, usually under layers, because you can start a fire, get those things, you can pretty much hand dry those things, you wave right. them in the air, right? And it, believe it or not, you get a fire going, you can you can survive until your other clothes get warm, so. Yeah. Um, and another thing, you know, Alaska in the summertime, mosquitoes. Uh, yes. I can't stress enough, you're not going to, a lot of people, I'm not going to carry bug spray with me, but one of my layers is a bug repellent. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Yeah. And so, and if not, it's light enough that I can at least put a hood over it and keep the bugs out of your face. I mean, that's. Yeah. A lot of times I don't, that's not a, always with me, but mm-hmm. I guarantee you I always have light gear underneath uh, layered up. So yeah. I can't stress enough. And, and there's a lot of good material out there mm-hmm. and people are, well, I'm not going to spend that kind of money. Well, your life might depend on it one day. And that money yeah. that you spend like $80 flashlight yeah. or, versus, you know, I'm going to spend $200 on, on gear. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot of times that's what you survive with. Right. So, yeah, and right. That, and you, that gear now is, it'll last you a lot longer than just one year. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Can't stress enough about quality. Have either of you read To Build a Fire, the short story by Jack London? I don't think I have. No, I, don't I, think I, so. I highly recommend anybody listening, you guys read it. It's, it's like 18, 20 pages. It's a short read, hmm. but it is, um, if it, 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 it kind of, it was recommended on a like Jack Carr reading list or something like that, mm-hmm. which is, he's, he's got a great, a lot of great recommendations, but. I I found I bought the book while we were down there hunting at a book local bookstore I like to visit and yep. and I read it while we were in in camp one night and um it's it, it's kind of an extreme situation and it's just a it's not a true story but it's about a guy who was walking on a river in the winter um and you know it was very very cold you know and throughout you know it's all whole whole uh, I won't give too much away but whole thing is like it's not this cold it was this cold right it was super cold and uh it didn't turn out good mm-hmm. because he wasn't really prepared and he didn't take advice that was given to him mm-hmm. by those that, you know, it talks about him thinking about that advice and thinking about how he thought, oh no, I'll be fine. It yeah. won't happen to yeah. me, right? It's not going to happen Anyhow, to me. I don't yeah. want to give away the whole story because it's a, it's a good story <laughs> to find out what happens when you read it, but it is well worth the few minutes it takes to read. Mm. You bring up a good point. You know, in Alaska, we do a lot of uh, hunting in wintertime yeah. and, you know, we have overflow, we have ice situations. One of the things you consider is how do you get out of that when you break through? Yeah. A lot of times, and in fact, your uncle um, carries with him spike strips. You can make them out of anything. Mm. But I mean, try to crawl out of a, yeah. I was spear fishing one time and went down and, and yeah, it was not very easy to get back on top of the water. But yeah, but yeah. Uh, yeah. 
We talked about that just a few weeks ago, that, that there was a guy uh, that was ice skating on a lake just outside of Wasilla or Palmer. I don't remember. And th- this was back in early October that this actually happened, but it was just after the ice had, had come in. And it was, I, I think it was two inches, maybe, maybe, maybe three inches yeah. at the most. But this fellow was actually experienced at, at, at self-recovery getting out of the ice. And he had a set of those spikes around his neck yep. and he broke through. There was actually a cameraman from the local news station videoing because he was the first skater on the lake. Oh my. And he just, boom, went right through. <laughs> and so if you look it up on the, on the news, you can find the picture of him with those spikes pulling him up on the ice. Yeah, it's just been prepared. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I, it won't yeah. happen to me, right? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah it's, right. it's not, it's not going to happen to me, right? Uh, my dad uh, tells a story of riding sled out trapping or something. He was on a slough riding snow machine when I say sled. Um, mm-hmm. And he had his, uh, I think at the time he had like a uh, refrigerator snowsuit, mm-hmm. yeah, which is extremely warm. You know, you can, you can wear those and easily 20, 30 below and be, be comfortable, right? Yeah. But he was out riding and he got off his sled and was walking. I think, you know, may have walked by a beaver dam or something where the beaver will thin the ice out. And there's no, unlike most other spots in rivers and lakes, there's no indication right. that that's happened around a beaver dam. You don't know where that's at. Yeah. Except for the fact that there's a beaver dam there. Anyhow, he, he fell through a hole. Went in completely. He was able to get out, mm. but uh, he wasn't. I don't think I knew that about your dad. He wasn't very far from his cabin. You know, I mean, he may have been. I don't know if he was even a mile. Right. He he jumps on his sled, rides to his cabin. He said, and he got to uh, off the sled, and he got to the cabin. He had to roll off the sled because he was frozen in Bro, the shape yep. <laughs> of yeah. sitting on a snow machine. He had to roll in, like get in the door, and get really? warmed up. Yeah. Did he say about what temperature it was? I don't remember. I don't know if he remembers, but when was this? Was like, years ago, when he was single. Like, I mean, years and years ago. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So, at at the at the earliest mid nineties. Yeah, I mean, it, it probably close to thirty years ago. Yeah. Wow. Even in Alaska, even in wintertime in the rivers mm-hmm. in Alaska, you don't know where those warm springs, the same thing. Yeah. They cover yeah. in snow and next thing you know, you're in water, not overflow, but you're in water. And uh, yeah. uh, again, where you're going, if you're hunting or if you're on that kind of stuff, trapping, you really need to prepare yourself for that, yeah. that emergency situation. Yeah. Yeah. It won't happen to me, but when it does, you want to have that gear. Yeah. Well, let's take one more quick break and then we're going to come back and talk uh, just briefly about rivers and more on just about being on the river and and a few other things that have to do with safety, but not what we've covered so far. So we'll be right back. All right, folks. We all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope. Last year, I found the solution to that problem with the Stealthy Hunter rifle cover. It wraps around your scope and action securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged. Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, Go to StealthyHunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, The Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA. All right, so our final topic, and this is probably the most um, valuable uh, perspective that none of the three of us can normally bring. Mm-hmm. James and Mariah and myself, 
these things are uh, situations that we haven't been in personally that, that we wanted to bring in somebody that has a lot more experience than we do. And number one, that is reading the rivers in the interior of Alaska. That's a whole different ballgame than running the boats on the saltwater, mm-hmm. which is what I have a lot more experience in. And then also I want to talk about uh, some backcountry mechanic. I know uh, probably six months ago now, Mo and James did an episode while I was gone, I don't remember, but and it was called it was, but yeah. Backcountry Mechanic, and it was Mo talking about all of his histories with four-wheelers and breakdowns in the field and recovery of, of a stuck machine, and so that, that definitely applies to boats, and even probably in spades in a lot of situations, because if you're downriver, well, and you have to get back upriver, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you've got stories about that too. Uh, yeah. um, but then also, just for folks that don't know you, uh, you've also been running a youth camp that is uh, on a river. Correct. Remote Alaska. Remote. That that I, I, yeah. I, I attended several times, and as did Mariah, mm-hmm. uh, growing up as teenagers. We didn't that get was, too much trouble. That was the best youth camp I was ever a part of. And yeah, I definitely never got in any kind yeah. of trouble. No. Never. Um, but you guys have been doing that for a teen outreach ministry for uh, ha- having a youth camp and you have a bunch of staff out there, volunteers that help put on this camp. So just right. kind of talk a little bit about what that is and how long that's been going on. You bet. Yeah. So I came back to Alaska after going through college um, and <clears throat> wanted to reach Alaska youth. And, and basically because Alaska has the highest rate of suicide among youth, mm-hmm. people, you know, youth teenagers and stuff like that. And there's hope out there. And, and so we, it is Christian based. And so we do talk to them about, you know, Christ and, and uh, you know, that uh, we're valuable uh, we're not just trash, if you will. A lot of times they come from places where they're telling them that they're, they're worthless, they're mm-hmm. no good. Right. Yeah. But that's not true. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we started that camp back in 1996, been going on for, I think our first camp, we landed in 1996, uh, the land, we got 80 acres from my wife's uncle in the middle of Alaska there on the, on the Tanana River. And then we set up the, our first outbuilding, if you will, and then uh, in 1999, we had our first camp, and we had 12 people. And the first boat that we started that camp with was what was called a Southern Skimmer, and it's kind of like a Carolina skiff mm-hmm. with a 50-horse. Yeah. And, I mean, I remember going <laughs> 20 miles up river, and it took us six hours, you know. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was, you know, we're living, we're living good then compared to the 35-horse, you know, the yeah. 30 or 15-horse days back when I was younger. When we brought material down, we, I think we took five boats and we overloaded those boats. I'm just going to be honest with you. We had them things packed <laughs> and it was barging down river and it took us, I think, 12 hours to go uh, wow. like 60 miles down river. Whoa. And we got there and it's it, a long story pouring down rain and, and we got, we, we made it to camp. We put our building up. But yeah, I've been there since uh, 1996, started our first camp in 1999, still going strong. Uh, yeah. We'll have uh, again this year. Uh, we went from just a 50 horse, uh, a uh, 20 foot skimmer, uh, Southern skimmer. Now I've got a 28 all weld with a 225 Honda on it, which is very nice. Um, we call it the arc, um, which yeah. we put a lot in there. We also have a, uh, sea arc, which we also have a 24 foot sea arc with a 150 on it. And then I've got friends of mine that also have 150s and, 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 yeah. uh, all, all welds as well. So we only run the camp now is usually have a minimum of four to five boats. And so <clears throat> when you're transporting people on the river, a lot of things you, you're talking about safety and things like that. So yeah. there's a lot of stuff that we we run in packs, and we always talk about. Hey, if you have boat boat trouble, you don't go to the shore because you're talking about sweepers and stuff. And mm-hmm. You certainly want to do that. We go to the center where the sandbars are at because you're not going to get in trouble there. And then we can get 
out of the boats over there and help people that way. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, a lot of strategy about river safety and things like that when you have people on there. And so a lot of people think they can just jump on a river and it's going to be good. Well, the Tanana River's muddy. You can't see where the sandbars are at, and it changes daily. Mm-hmm. And so there's a way to read the river. A lot of times you read currents, you look at the banks, you look at where that flow is going, and you can see it. Another thing is when there, there is no current, you can't see it. Then you start looking at what the drift's doing or maybe the foam that's on the water, where it's going. And a lot of times you can kind of tell where that current's at at that point. So over the years, you can see that stuff. Even even well, people have been on the river long enough, you're going to run sandbars. I mean, mm-hmm. you're going you're gonna to tickle them. Or we say tickle them or you hit them. And so we run props. And uh, we do it for a reason. A lot of people, I can't believe you run props in that river because yeah. you should be running jet. But if you know the river, we're running anywhere from four to 60 feet of water. It's hard to believe that in some of the corners, there's actually, I think the, the deepest I've seen is over 60 foot. Wow. Um, but most of the time we're running between four and 12 uh, on that river. And so you can see it. We got, uh, we got um, uh, depth, depth, uh, depth finders yeah, now, depth which, finder. and uh, it, it just tells you when you're about ready to hit. It, it doesn't <laughs> kick you off there, right? If the numbers get too low, yeah. you brace for impact. <laughs> so, yeah, so like, go back. Let's talk a little bit about that. So if, if, if we do break down, I tell, I tell people on my boat, if we break down and we start to drift, I don't want the bow of the boat going down river. I want the bow always fo- facing up. I want the back of the bow. I want the back of the boat to hit the bank. I want the, I want the rake of the boat looking up river. And they're like, why? I said, because that's the way the boat's built. And like you talked about how fast it is to flip a boat in the water. Well, you mm-hmm. hit up against a current or, or a, a sweeper on that boat, whether you're sideways or you're going down, you hit, and that back of that boat's going to go in mm-hmm. pretty yep. quick. It goes um, fast. That little boat that I had, I sunk the boat. Same, similar to what you did, but it, went, it went, went out from underneath us in seconds. Wow. And so that's one thing you tell them, hey, listen, I don't care. I can take the back of the cowling of the boat. I can take all the canopies off, let them hit the sweepers. I want the back of the boat hitting. Downriver, I want the front of the boat always up. And, and so that's one of the first things you tell them about that. And it's not, you know, if you break down in the river, it's just a matter of when. Yeah. And you got to be prepared to do that. So I used to run jet boats. I had a big jet boat at one time, and they were heavy. It was a heavy boat. And, but I wouldn't leave without having a come along, and I had 150 feet of, of uh, quarter-inch cable that I kept in the boat. Mm. And we were headed down to the camp, and a friend of mine was, well, let's go, Dean. I said, I, I'm not leaving until I find my cable. I need that cable in the boat before we go. Well, let's just go. We're, we're wasting time. Well, it took me about an hour to find my cable. <laughs> Found the cable, put it in the boat. We made it to camp just fine. Well, coming back up, I knew I cut part of this river, and it was shallow, but I, I figured I had plenty of water in the jet boat, and I'm taking chances anyways. And I hit a sandbar, and I hit good. I actually sent his son from the back of the boat to the front of the boat and actually broke the front window. Oh, wow. And... um and we were stuck. I took a, I took a, a, a big 24 foot jet boat and I'm, I'm in like two inches of water. And oh boy. So we're the, and there's nobody, usually not too much traffic, traffic on that river. Yeah, yeah. And so, so well, I'm taking out my come along, I'm taking out all my cable and I had just enough cable to go from the front <laughs> of the boat to the bank with that 150 foot cable. And I, and we winched the thing off. I had to put a log in the river to break the suction of the boat. Yeah, mm-hmm. get up on a log. The logs don't roll, but you can slide that boat easier yeah. on, a, on a log yeah. than on that sand. So for folks that might not be familiar, explain what a sandbar is. Okay, so in, a, in Alaska Silt River, again, a lot of that river's brown. It is, it's pushing sand. It's basically real fine, coarse, ground-up rock. Yeah. And that changes in the river, and it's just like a sand you'd see on the beach, but it's gray, kind of a gray. And it moves, and you can't see it when that river mm-hmm. when it moves. And so when we hit that, you hit it, and it's 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 there, you know. And you can think 
you got a lot of water there, but like that jet boat, when I got finally stopped, we were in like two inches of water and that boat needs at least six just to float. Yeah. And so then we were stuck. So, and then sandbars can change and that's part of the current that's in the river. Those sandbars are always breaking and falling off and underneath the water and stuff as, yeah. a, as that current goes through there and cuts that. And so that's what you're looking at is a lot of the times right. where those swirls and stuff. And you can tell a lot of times that the activity of the, the current is doing a lot of that stuff. So you kind of follow those swirls in a river. But yeah, yeah you got to be prepared for that. And, uh, and you know, I usually have people standing up in boats and for that reason, hey, we could hit. Yeah. yeah. I remember one time we had a boatload of, of material for the camp. We had a refrigerator. We had a bunch of lumber. I had two or three <laughs> barrels of gasoline. Oh, boy. And I stuck, stuck a boat and there we are. And, and what do I do is I have to unload the gasoline in the middle of the river. Oh. And so I, I got these barrels of gas sitting out by the boat just so I get the boat floating. And then I had the refrigerator sitting on like four, five-gallon <laughs> buckets of paint. And I had my kids holding it. We got the boat floating and all the lumber, but I had to get all the stuff back in the boat now, yeah. right? And so I had to build ramps with the lumber that I had to roll the barrels back up into the boat. It was, it was, it was quite the deal, but we did. It took us about four hours. We got our boat floating wow. again. Yeah. It could have been worse. Wow. Could have yeah. been worse. No kidding. Yeah, we got, we made it to camp, but yeah. Alaska River is a lot of, a lot of uh, excitement. Another thing when we're running the river, fuel in Alaska, you just got to be careful. You know, we got, use 55 gallon drums. And if you're not familiar with 55 gallon drums, you can seal them, but because of the heat mm-hmm. and, and the cold, they contract and, and shrink and they, they can actually suck water inside those bungs even though they're sealed. Yep. And so water's an issue. And so we filter all our fuel into the boat. You have everyone, a water separator. Yep, yeah. Everyone, I don't care where it's coming from, it's water separated. Except for one time I bought a brand new boat from a boat shop here in town. I'm not going to name the name. We ran the boat. Everything was good. I didn't check the fuel in that boat. The only time I didn't. And I broke the boat because it was, I sucked up water. <laughs> Into the engine, uh, and uh, so we ended up stalling that boat. I actually got it going again, but that shame on me because I broke my own rule. I didn't check the fuel. I, yeah. was, I was assuming that it was good. So yeah, yeah, there's a lot of things going to happen. Just a couple of years ago, we had water and fuel problems on our deer hunt. Yep, right. Yep, we were borrowing a couple of uh, fifty-five, no, twenty-five gallon drums. Twenty, just uh, yeah, just those little plastic drums. Yep. We were transporting a bunch of extra boat fuel out to our deer base camp. And, uh, the, the individual that I had been borrowing those drums from had just had them stored. Well, through the process of time, whatever that the, the bungs hadn't been put back on these little drums yep. and they got a little bit of residual water in there, which the time of year that we were deer hunting, it was very cold. It was a cold year. It was winter time. So there was ice in there. So he had told me, he said, yeah, th- there's a little bit of ice in these. You, you probably just, you know, smack it on the pavement before you go gas them up and just dump out the ice. Right. <laughs> I, I did my best, but uh, it, it, it was not without any small amount of effort that I was able to get most of it out. But there's still some, you know, shavings and residual just ice chunks in there that, that, you, that you can't get out. Yeah. And there's just a slim sheen lining of ice that you can see when you shine a flashlight in there that, you, that you're not going to get out unless you dump a pot of hot water in there. Or put warm fuel in there. Yeah, yeah that works. Yeah. So we filled them up with fuel and then we went and bought a fresh fuel and water separator. Now, a funny story about that. I was uh, in a different location hunting a different species at one point, not in the, not in the distant uh, past. And uh, we use a lot of boats at this particular place for our hunting. And 
we had a bunch of those water separators for filtering all of our fuel because we are religious about filtering all of our fuel. Yeah. Because the place that we get our fuel from at our fuel dock is notorious for having just the worst fuel. Yeah. You can just about drink it. That's the joke. It's, it's, it's pretty much water. Well, we had a bunch of these old water separator um, funnels that, that you can buy at Napa for, mm-hmm. you know what, 15, 20 bucks. And these separators have been out for a while. And uh, another comrade of mine um, that I, I've mentioned before on the podcast, we were filtering fuel one day and we realized, man, this, is, this does not seem like this filter is working. Like we get to the bottom of the barrel dumping it into these fivers to go on all the boats and uh there's no water in this filter this is man we must have had a good batch of fuel <laughs> <laughs> well then one of our other uh um co-workers will just say comes over with a bottle of water and just dumped water in it and it all just whoosh, straight through it right there you go i said all right time to refilter everything <laughs> yeah. don't trust any of it but yeah, yeah so don't just leave those filters and, and you think that they're going to work year after year yeah. after year. Every year we go through our fuel system. I'm going through the fuel system. I, I take the drums, completely empty them out, wipe them out, clean them out. We start fresh yeah. every year. We just have to. Another thing that we really are prepared for on that river is that you have a 28-foot boat. You're not going to paddle that thing too very far. So we put right. we have backup motors, small kicker yeah. motors on there. Even a two-horse motor can move those boats. Mm-hmm. Maybe not upstream, but they can steer you a lot better than you can with a paddle. Yeah. All of our boats have a you know a large you know smaller large kicker and and we test those before we go but that's things that we learned over the years because I've had I've been in boats not with with people in it but myself and even trying to paddle a boat in the wind yeah uh, you yep. can't it's almost next to impossible so yep. those motors that we carry now are the boats that we have now every one of them has a backup kicker and another story I had to rescue my wife's uncle uh, and uh, we wouldn't have had to rescue him if he would have had a Spare kicker. So hmm. I gave him one of my other kickers. I said, and he he had to, he had put that on his boat, and it was like about a month later, he calls me up and said, "Hey, thanks for the kicker. It got me back home." You know, so <laughs> it's one of those things you learn over time. You know, hey, they don't weigh that much, and it's mm-hmm. just a must here in Alaska, especially when you're dealing with things like that. You just you're just so far out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it'll, it'll you know it'll it'll get you downstream to the next village easy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just you know it might not be rocket speed, but you can do it safely. Yeah. 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 And so probably one of the foundational rules that, that we've talked about before in, in relation to being safe in the backcountry is communication before yep. you leave. Yep. Let somebody know where you're going, how long you think it's going to take you to Absolutely. get there. And if you miss a predetermined check-in yep. time, then they know something went wrong. Yep. Because let's just say worst case scenario, that inReach got wet and it, it wasn't waterproof as advertised, right? That mm-hmm. can happen. It's mm-hmm. electronic. It could fail. So you need to know that you have the assurance that, hey, I already let, you know, cousin Joe know back in Fairbanks before I left to go down the river that uh, I, I was going to be at my destination at, at Moose Camp, say, yep. um, by dark tonight, and that I was going to text him within two hours of dark that I had made it safely. Right. And if I don't check in, then I know tomorrow morning he's going to be in the river headed my way, yep. at least by tomorrow morning, so, so that you at least have that hope of, of, of a second line of communication. Yep. Uh, you know, that's very important. It's, it's like, you know, aircraft, you know, you, you file a flight plan. You yeah. need to do the same yep. thing when you're on the river. You tell yeah. people where you're going and what the, what route you're going to take and stay on that route. A lot of times people get in a situation, well, they take a different route and didn't tell anybody. Yeah. And we're, yeah. we spend all that effort looking on one part of the river and they're actually in another uh, subsidiary, if you will, a slough that's way out in the middle of nowhere because they decided to do that. 
again, back to communication, if you're changing, hey, we're good, we're now going to go up and, and right. or let somebody yeah. know where you're going to be. I mean, because Alaska is huge. It's yeah. Just, yeah. You're not, you know. Lots of variables. Yeah. Every once in a while, when I'm going about my day, working, whatever, I'll get a random text, maybe from an inReach. Mm-hmm. You know, this may happen once, twice a year from Dalton. Yeah. And he's saying, hey, you know the area I'm in. This is where I'm going instead of where I was planning, or perfect, yeah, you know that kind of thing. And I'll do the same thing to him every, yeah. you know, just randomly think, hey, I should send a message, yeah. you know, yeah. either to him or if my dad knows the area, I'll send it to somebody who knows the area, like, hey, this is yeah. what I was doing, this is where I'm at, perfect, yeah. Or if I don't know where I'm going and I'm just gonna head back into an area by myself that I've never been before, once I get there, I'd let him know where I'm headed. But yeah. then once I get there, I I send him a waypoint, like, yeah. hey, this yeah. is where I camped. Yeah, I shouldn't be too far from here if, yeah. if you don't hear from me. Right? Yeah, yeah. So it's so important when you because literally, you know, you have to do a search and rescue. You want to know where yeah. to start. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. that yeah. communication is absolutely important. Something else to caddy off of too is uh, when that story um, happened to me earlier on as, as a teenager. Um, when that boat went down, that the, the, the fellow I was with didn't sat phone and just call any old buddy. He called somebody that had a boat that he knew could get to where we were. Right. Because mm-hmm. I mentioned before, we were in some skinny stuff. We were passing boats that had been swamped on the way that, that had been abandoned to right. return for a rescue at some point. So this was not without great challenge. Yeah. At, at one point, we had had to push that boat over a log jam ramp almost a quarter mile yeah. over a gravel bar. And so it wasn't like you could just bring anybody out there mm-hmm. with, with a big, heavy boat. I mean, sure, he, he could have called you. But my, boat, my boat was it. My boat was make it where you're going. But you're not going to push your boat a quarter mile over land. Yeah. You know, so he, he, he already had somebody in mind that he knew was capable yeah. of getting out there. And that goes for the same thing. Mm-hmm. If you get hurt in sheep country and you're not on a spot that, that you think that you need a helicopter rescue, well, you need to have somebody in mind that's yep. fit enough and has the right equipment to get to you to yep. help you get out. Yep. If your sheep is too heavy to carry out by yourself and you need a hand getting it out of the woods, I've heard of that happening before too. And, and, and that, that's, that, there's nothing to be ashamed of mm-hmm. with asking for help, right? Especially when it comes to a, well, if I carry this, I, I might be able to you know, play macho and do it, but you also might trip and fall down the mountain yep. and, and break your ankle or something stupid that you could have avoided Yep. By just texting a friend and saying, hey, I could really use an extra back on this hunt. Yep. Um, but also having a four-wheeler rescue partner. Yeah. I have a four-wheeler that can probably get to pretty much anywhere you can and vice versa. Right. If I get in a bad spot, I've got a lot of friends that own four-wheelers, but Mariah's going to be my first phone call because yep. I know he's going to get there. And he knows that if he texts me, I'm not going to stop if I get halfway there and run into a big mud hole because... Well, I'm not going to wonder if he's on the other side of it. I know he's on the other side of it because <laughs> he and I have done enough stuff together. But ha- having the trust in a partner like yep, that to, to come yeah. out and help recover mm-hmm. your bad situation, because I, I think we said this in the last episode, there's a, there are a lot of situations that happen in Alaska every year that are front page of the newspaper oh, yeah. worthy that never make it to the news because yeah. they didn't go tragic. They were able to be mm-hmm. resolved because somebody already had a plan. Right. If they didn't have a plan, that story could have gone much, much, much worse. Oh, yeah. So having that prepared ahead of time is oftentimes going to be what gets you out of it. Yeah. So one more thing I want to talk about is motors. 
Boats are notorious for having problems when you least expect it and when it's the least convenient. I've always been told BOAT is an acronym for Breakout Another Thousand. That's a good acronym. So talk about what you carry for a toolkit, what you need to be able to fix on your own without somebody else with you, possibly in the dark, maybe stuck out on a sandbar somewhere. What basic tools do you carry and why? And maybe an example. Sure. I can give you a couple. I can go old school. So some of the older boats that before the big electronic came, Mm -hmm. I mean, you could actually take a piston out and still make it home on three pistons out of a four piston motor. If you know what you're doing, it's not going to sound real good, but you can limp home or limp to a village. Yeah. Uh, A lot of the newer motors, you can't do that. A lot of them electronics and stuff like that. So anymore is, that's why we carry a spare motor because a lot of times on the new motors, in Alaska, you're not going to fix them unless you're carrying electronics. And oh, I do carry yeah. I do carry a computer. Has a computer program that mm. I can put new um, um, injectors in one of my boats, and I have to have that computer program to do so. Really, I just can't take an injector off and put it on yeah. there. So um, that you know, that's again being prepared and knowing how to do that. And I've had to do that at camp. I've actually had to put two injectors at camp, uh, and I had to do it over a sat phone, and it had to have a computer program flown out to me and that's now I got the computer program with that boat when it goes. Um, I also have spare injectors, but that's kind of because of the, this, the nature we're in. Um, so a lot of times know your motor uh, mm-hmm. and know how you can do the basic things. Biggest thing on a lot of times in motors is really the fuel and filtering. Mm-hmm. And so, and I always carry a four stroke motors now, I always carry enough to change out a complete change of, of oil. Same thing with the lower mm-hmm. unit. Uh, lower units, I can get at home on two changes of oil if I lose a seal. I mean, so some mm. things to think about. So I usually have enough uh, oil on my boats to do a complete change out for the four strokes. And same thing with the lower units. Now I run props on the on the boat, and so I always carry a spare prop. And and why we do that is in Alaska rivers, I hit a log, I can bend a prop, and then yeah. I, I have to change it out. Mm-hmm. Right. And so know how to know how to change out a prop. And a prop you just don't change. If you change a prop over water. I carry an extra pair of thrust washer, extra washer, extra mm-hmm. extra uh, nut, and extra carter, carter pins to put that on. There's a chance that you're going to drop all you're, that off yeah, the original you could. One. So my crescent wrench that I use to change prop out is actually tethered to the boat. And so we take that off yeah. and then we take our time doing that. Even though you're being careful, I've dropped those in the water. And so that's some things to think about when you're in Alaska water. It's again, Silt River, you're not going to see, you're not going to pick it up yeah, unless right. you're in a clear water, you're not going to do that. And so over time, you're, those are some things you got to think about. So on each one of my boats, spare props, spare nuts, spare thrust washers, spare oil, uh, spare a complete set of brand new plugs that go in there as well. And so that gets yeah. you out a lot of times so a yeah. lot of problems. And an extra fuel filter in every one of my boats. So. Yeah, what you say about knowing, <clears throat> knowing how to change the prop, knowing, yeah. having at least some idea of how that motor works and what bolts take yeah. off, what parts. Because yeah. any newer piece of equipment, Mm-hmm. Yeah. it'll blow your mind what you have to do to get to something or what you don't have to do when it looks complicated. So, last, last night, I had a, a coworker who had a problem with his car and, I, and he, he needed alternator replaced. He has like a 905 Ford Escape, right? Mm-hmm. I've never worked on a Ford Escape before, but it's an 05. It can't be that hard to replace an alternator. <laughs> so I say, all right, well, where we're working, we got a garage space. I know the boss will let us use it. If you can, you stay late. Yeah, good. All right, we're going to replace that tonight. So he pulls the car in. I pop the hood and I can't see the alternator. Where in the world's the alternator? Oh, well, it turns right. It's on the back of the motor at the bottom. Oh, wow. I had to remove an axle. Oh, wow. Really? To get the alternator out. 
not only axle and half shaft off the off the div. Oh, to man. get the alternator out, it took what what I thought would take thirty minutes took three hours. Yeah. Oh yeah. And wow. I'm I am very grateful that I do how to work on view. Yeah. But but it's just it, that was in a garage, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So all of my boats as well. We have lower units. We have water mm-hmm. pumps, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, Alaska River Silt. A water pump lasts me a year and a half, so I'm changing those on a regular basis. And so that's important to have water running through the mm-hmm. engines. You don't overheat right. them. I've actually had to drop lower units halfway to camp, put a new water pump system in. Uh, and so you got to know that. And that's wow. those are bolts and knowing how to do that. So when to do that is at home when you're doing your maintenance, know right. how to do that. All my boys know how to do it. All of my boat captains know how to drop a lower unit mm-hmm. and how to do it safely. And I always have extra parts and pieces because you will eventually drop something you don't need. Yeah. And another thing you realize, you just don't use any, any just any carter pin to hold that shaft on, stainless steel. Because if you don't use stainless steel, oh, yeah. you'll find out you'll lose a prop pretty quick. <laughs> don't ask me how I know that, okay? So <laughs> back to just knowing some basic things, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, that, that there's, there's a few different fellows that, that, uh, that, that we could, I'm sure all of us come up with names for that, uh, that have had to get parts flown in, just like you said, via Super Cub. Yes. That, hey, help me. I'm stuck. I'm, I'm on the gravel bar out here. I, I, I made it somewhere. At least I'm in a decent camping spot, but yep. I got a problem and I'm not going to make it back to town. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, having those emergency connections, but you know, being able to self-diagnose, yeah. but being mechanically knowledgeable enough to figure that out in the field and realize that this is what's going on, this is what I need to fix it, and uh, you know, just being able to call for the right help. Yeah. Well, those are all great stories. Uh, I, I'm sure we could go on for a long time, but that's, uh, I think that's really what we wanted to cover for today. Um, so thanks for coming on to uh-huh. talk about, I mean, probably a little bit, um, some of our heavier topics possibly. Perhaps yeah. a little bit of backcountry safety and and some and some bad situations that uh, could have been a lot worse yeah. if you hadn't uh, had a cool head about it and just kept on doing what you knew how to do. So uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you for your time. You bet. And we'll have to have you on again sometime when you shoot uh, a moose bigger than Jeff Day. There you go. <laughs> uh, with a pistol, right? Jeff loves oh, yeah. to talk about go. his moose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We might be able, that one wouldn't be as hard to beat, right? Oh, I don't know. What, what was his pistol here? one? 65 and change. I mean, to be easier than 75. He's, he's probably going to text me as soon as he hears this and correct me on it. So I, I don't know. Yeah. Anybody that shoots a moose with a pistol, I don't care what it is. And I'll do that. Yeah. I mean. Hats off to him. That yeah. is an accomplishment. Yeah, Jeff yeah. has done great things. You know, I had I a pretty know, small crowd. A friend of ours at church there. So we talked to a lot about guns and whatnot, and he's yeah. been talking to me about those um, Thompson, Thompson contenders. Con- Thompson contenders. Yeah. For a while, mentioned. Mm-hmm. Hey, have you heard of the? You've, have you looked those up? And you he know, used to I'd, shoot those competitively. Yeah, I know. He still has them. and He loves them. Oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, he doesn't like the new uh, Lyman reloading manual because it took a bunch of the old contender <laughs> cartridges out of it. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> it made him really upset. But anyway. <laughs> I then Jeff started talking about shooting that moose with it, and I really looked into it. Now I really want a contender. Interesting. They're nice guys. Yeah, that's pretty like cool. That. That'd be a sweet pistol to hunt with. Yeah. Well, I think with that note, folks, we're going to sign off for this week. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Again, if you would like to support us and what we're doing, you can go over to our website, thenorthernhunter.com, and shop for many of our sponsors uh, using our discount codes. That really goes a long ways. And the easiest thing you can do is whatever platform you're listening to us on, Give us a five-star review. That really helps boost us in the algorithms and helps us get uh, this show in front of more listeners. And then also, you can just share it word of mouth or just uh, text the link of this show to any of your friends that you think might be interested in this kind of content. So five-star review, 
and then leave us a review on Apple iTunes uh, platform or, or Spotify as well. I think Spotify is a little bit different as far as written reviews, but anything you can do, positive feedback goes a long ways. And then once again, our favorite kind of feedback is via the email. Uh, if you go to the contact us button on our website, you can send us a direct email that we will all see here at the podcast. That's right. And uh, you can ask questions. We have a lot of folks that ask questions about different hunting trips in Alaska, different deer questions, right. ballistics. If you have a question about hammer bullets, uh, you can all send that through, the, through that email link. And uh, if you also just want to hear something mentioned on the podcast, if you have a question about hunting up here that you want us to answer, uh, even if we don't have the answer, we'll find somebody that does and we'll bring them on and talk about it. So without further ado, we'll see you guys next Monday. Thanks for listening to the show. And until then, get out there, get after it, and good luck. Alright folks, we all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope. Last year I found the solution to that problem with the Stealthy Hunter rifle cover. It wraps around your scope and action securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged. Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, go to StealthyHunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, The Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA.